everyone, this is the first episode of the Cherryton School Report, a podcast about the Japanese anime, Beastars. I'm Sabrina Ray, also known as Boo, and coming at us from the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois, is my childhood buddy, Don Munson. Don, greet the people. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you today? I mean, we're living in extraordinary times. That's a... That's a good point. Uh, For those who may be joining us well after the fact, we are about a month into the general lockdown of the COVID-19 situation. And I'm trapped here with my my two kids, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and my wife. And um, it's not perfect, Bob, I'm going to tell you. Um, I mean, I I love my family. (laughs) I wish I... But you want to murder them. (laughs) Murder is strong. It's a strong sentiment. Um, no, I, I, I love my kids, but uh, it's difficult to get some peace uh, unless you just give unbridled access to the digital devices, which just generally turns them into monsters anyway. It's a challenging time here for everybody, so I'm glad I have the opportunity to do this with you. Oh, I'm glad to have you too. And um, I want you to, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me if you don't know me. Uh, I am the host of a different podcast called A Cruel Angels Podcast, which was an Evangelion rewatch podcast uh, that I hosted with Dustin Furman from handsomephantom.com. And uh, I threw this out on Twitter. I was like, is there anybody out there that wants to do a Beastars podcast with me? Because I need to talk about this show because it is wild. Um, and Dawn, you were the first one to like just like throw your name right in the hat. It was amazing. I never expected it, but this is your first podcast, right? This is absolutely my first podcast, uh, as as I think you're fully aware, since I purchased equipment in order to podcast specifically for this purpose. Um, I will say that I do enjoy this sort of format of talking back and forth uh, about various topics, and therefore uh, I thought this was as good an opportunity as any. And uh, I have always enjoyed our particular conversations on various topics, so I figured why not expose the wider world to that particular joy. Now, speaking of that, um, you and I grew up as neighbors. Um, was I the one that introduced you to anime? I think that's a that is a fair statement. Yeah. For example, you know, um, my earliest memories of this kind of stuff go back to when you were showing like Ranma One Half, or um, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones that were particularly notable around those times. But it definitely piqued my interest, and we didn't have a lot of great or good. Uh, Western anime traditions than to follow. I mean, I, I, we, I, both of us, I assume, woke up and watched copious amounts of Saturday morning TV to get our cartoon fix. Right. If you wanted to watch the anime shows, which were like we didn't know when we were kids no, that they were anime, but that they had yeah. originated in Japan, like Voltron. Like you had to wake up super early because those. Oh, were I mean, I remember getting up like you know when it was still women's calisthenics was the only thing on TV. And that, you know, it was like five in the morning and I'm like glued to the television and I turned it way down so that people wouldn't come and be like, what the hell are you watching right now? But yeah, I absolutely love this stuff. And you know, the, you go back to our youth, Voltron is a great example. Thundercats was one that I was um, particularly enthralled with. Like the lost cities of gold. What, is a, what was that one? Yeah. 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 That one I think is anime. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, it better fits the, the style. Um, Right. I mean, all of it's animated, but I'm not going to try and split hairs. Anyway. Oh, my God. Did you just use our first pun? Our first animal-related pun? Uh, 
No, not consciously. Split hairs, as in rabbits? As in rabbits. <laughs> All right, let me talk a little bit. <laughs> yes. Let me talk, talk a little bit about the show. So Beastars, here's the elevator pitch. It's like Disney's Zootopia, but darker, more adult-themed, and set at a high school. So I think in many ways it tackles similar issues as Zootopia does, with like racism and classism and the relationship between a feral nature and a docile one. But it's willing to, um, it has the luxury of plunging deeper, seeing as it's an ongoing series and not an hour and a half long movie directed at kids. Would you say that's a fair assessment, Don? Yeah, I think that's pretty good. I would also add that uh, what may separate it from sort of a Zootopia world, and I actually do want to come back to the word world at some point later because it's referenced several times uh, and i like the way you say it (laughs) well i'm trying to be very uh articulate uh on that particular point but the it also i think is trying to plumb the same sort of depths of emotional upheaval that uh that you know people are going through and at this point of their life in in the setting of the show which is a high school based uh setting um, I, I presume it's a high school. Is this a high school or is this like college? I think it's based more on the Japanese form of schooling. So I can't, I, I, I the initial thing is, is this is a boarding school, but right. understand how young or how old people get. Our main character appears to be 17, but uh, that he's implied to be a second year. Uh, so that to me is confusing because that's way too young for college in the Western world. And I don't know what it's like in Japan. No, I think it is high school because Haru, who's a senior, the the rabbit girl, she is 18 in the show, if I if I remember correctly. I don't I think don't her age... I actually don't give you that information she's... in these two episodes. But... Okay, yeah. And I, we're only talking about the first two episodes here, and I have uh, restricted myself to just the first two episodes. So. Right. And that's going to be the format of our conversation with the audience is um, this is what you can expect week to week is we're going to be covering about two episodes of the anime per show of Cherryton School Report. And Don hasn't seen it, so he's going to be sort of experiencing f- fresh every week. Whereas I've seen all of it, but I haven't read any further in the manga than the show has gone either. So I'm not aware of what developments what are future yet developments to come, the world right? may hold. Yeah, okay. Um, but I will try to stay almost entirely within the episodes that we're discussing each week. And that should be easy for me because I'm just going to restrict myself to those episodes. But yeah, so the the high school component is pretty good, but there's. In these first two episodes, there's no mention of parents. There's no mention of like familial bonds. It appears to be really its own separate world from that perspective, um, from a familial unit, and that's I'm sure entirely deliberate. On the, you know, that's the that's the focus that they want us to bring. Like these people are finding their way in the world without that sort of significant guidance. And I haven't. There's been very little adult interaction for that matter uh, so far. You're really supposed to be focused and dialed into these post-pubescent young uh, adults. Right. Would I even know if I was looking at an adult? Because they're all um, anthropomorphized as animals. it's impossible to tell. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Yeah, what would they look like if they're 50 years older than they are now? You you might have no idea. Right. Like when you look at an animal out in like the wild, it's kind of hard to tell what's 
I mean, you'd know if it was super young, but it's kind of hard to tell what's like a middle-aged animal versus an old animal. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and the, the, the clothing doesn't really give it away either. There's a lot of school uniforms going on here. So, Oh, can we talk about that for just one second? Absolutely. I love the look of the show. Um, it's very debonair. Uh, it's like somewhere between a school uniform and a Brooklyn hipster. Oh, you're it, you're absolutely right that the at least the men's styling is like spot on. These guys look sharp, um, and it's very it is it's it's hysterical in some ways. I'm like, man, where do you? There's no seventeen year old that would look that put together and has clothes that look that tailored. I'm sorry, that's just that's not happening, especially given. Um, and they probably should spend some time on this. The fact that everybody's body is completely different because we're talking about animals. We've got rodents running around that are part of the um, part of the menagerie uh, of creatures that are yeah. allowed to be part. And I, I did want to speak about that because, uh, and I don't want to get too far off, but the, at least let's start with the clothing. Yeah, they look great. But the, the I actually think the the female dresses are a little dowdy and a bit of a throwback to... I don't know what they don't, they did not appear as sharp to me, the, but the spring dancing, right? It, it starts to make sense when you see the theme in, in episode two, when you see the theme song video that's done in stop motion, that's so beautiful and is so catchy, but um, yes, that see... was a very weird scene though. Like it, the opening to the first episode bears no resemblance to the opening to the second episode. There's no intro the way there is for the second one. Well, if you're not too familiar with how anime works, sometimes um, they don't put the song in the first episode. It comes in the second episode for whatever reason. Like, I don't know why they do it that way. I don't know if it's not ready or what, or maybe they make a pilot and it doesn't have the song attached. I, I think, yeah, I think it's. it seems to me more like it would be a pilot situation. And also, if you look at the opening, it involves um, what I presume are going to be our two main characters uh, Legoshi and Haru uh, having a moment and then dancing. And I mean, <laughs> it's very, it's very odd. And it actually is a different feel than you get out of the very first opening of the very first episode um, where you've got the the pounce scene. And I, I found that I was actually asking myself the question, why are we showing this scene right off? The music about it is what, is what makes oh, it to me. Yes very so to me it makes it very japanese and it really it was a tremendous throwback to neon genesis evangelion in my own head oh interesting to me that evoked that right off the bat um that sort of lonely wail well let me start out by saying that i also like the music at the beginning but for me it it plays a little bit like gothic horror like you got that backwoods kind of music and a mandolin coming in and uh, the visual flourishes that it opens with were very like they were keyed into horror for me. Very stylized, uh, but it's very. And uh, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I feel like that's very Japanese horror. That's definitely not a Western vision of, of or horror. Italian sort of... or some kind of European tradition, like uh, something very, very like as you said, stylized. It's very stylized, but I don't feel like we get that kind of music with a more Western tradition in terms of horror. Like it's more of a lonely, keen, uh, keening sound. That's the that's the way I think about it. Where, uh, like the 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 horror is actually being like separated from humanity, separated from what you're like. You're all on your own. You're lost in the world, um, and the way that 
that's portrayed in Western society, I think is very different or is different. And you don't get the same sort of touch points. Right. So we covered the song. I wanted to say something about the show before we get too far into the play by play, like the moment by moment analysis of what's going on. Fair Um, enough. You know, when it, when it was announced and people started talking about it online and the, the social medias picked it up, you couldn't like, you couldn't, opens like a social media post thread without seeing the word furry attached to it. And I think it's a little bit unfair. Like I know that it has a high furry appeal, but for me, this is a drama with non-human characters who inhabit both aspects of our human world and the animal world in interesting. And I would say selective ways, like not everything is based in their sort of animal instincts. Many of the things sort of play like human drama. Um, But to me that it's not just a furry thing. Um, And I'm not here to kink shame anyone. If the furry thing is your thing, that's totally cool. I would say that I am a like non-sexual furry in that I love stories with anthropomorphized characters. I always have. I loved Roger Rabbit when I was a kid. I loved, I loved the Looney Tunes type stuff. Um, And Zootopia was one of my favorite movies. It might be my favorite Disney movie. So, like, I am pre, like, made to enjoy, like, animals behaving in a humanistic way. Um, And that's kind of what I wanted to say about that. Do you have any thoughts about, like, where this lies for you? I mean, when I I first started watching it, I saw that that could be an appeal. But I think the logical extension of what if we have a Zootopia world, but then we can touch on adult themes are naturally going to head into issues of sexuality, of maturity, of uh, development. And so, you know, to me, I think it's where I think the show is going is using animalistic um, viewpoints or ideas to advance the same sort of universal themes that we experience as humans and to try and look at it in a novel and interesting way. But I, I don't, uh, I think it's, it's not, it should not, or I don't believe that it's catered to only an audience that may appreciate it for those aspects. Well, I brought it up especially because I don't want to not be able to talk about how sexy these characters are. <laughs> I mean, they exude sort of like a very uh, charming quality. Uh, and in some cases that that borders on sexual when, you know, like you have a rabbit stripping down to her underwear or whatever it is, you know. Um, and I don't want to have to qualify every time I talk about those things with sort of like, a uh, you know, a warning like, oh, this is furry content. And then we make fun of the furries. Like, that's not what this show is going to be about. So. Well, no, I assumed mostly because that would get stale super quickly. Super quickly, right? Super quickly. And I find that most people have very boring opinions about that kind of thing anyway. So Beastars is about predators and prey or carnivores and herbivores sort of trying to find a harmonious life together, despite the nature that both, uh, that both of them have, right? And one thing that immediately jumped out to me when you said you wanted to do this was that when we were growing up, I knew your family as uh, being a family that goes hunting and you were a hunter. And I was definitely more on the side of sort of the prey. I was the weaker of the two of us. I think. <laughs> and our relationship sometimes kind of reminds me of 
that sort of of what we see reflected in the show. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? I, I it's interesting that you consider that in that capacity. I I don't I don't tend to think about that part of my life. My father is still a massive hunter uh, to the extent that he is capable of getting around and doing it. He's getting up in the years, um, but you know the. I, I'm interested by the balance of the carnivore versus herbivore. And we haven't touched on omnivores very much, and they haven't really spoken about them, although they're quite frequent out there in the animal kingdom. I was just watching a video the other day where a horse gently reached down and snapped up a, a baby chicken and ate it whole. I'm terrified right now. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's know, also the, one of a, of a deer eating a bird, so... Oh, yeah. I mean, animals will eat anything that keeps them alive for the most part. Right. Um, I, you know, the, the we can get back at this point into this discussion of like this world versus they because they were referenced it a bunch. Now I'm watching um, the English dub and I also have subtitles on. Um, and I noticed they, in, especially in episode two, they talk about like, sort of the rules for this world, which I guess we obviously not living in the world don't know. So we need to be introduced to it as uh, watchers. And I, I just felt like it was very interesting that they were trying to create stylized elements to it. Um, and the, this aspect of herbivores versus carnivores and the, the delicate balance they appear to have struck uh, or not struck in the case, since the, the whole show starts with what is in, which is, I guess, supposed to be, an ongoing mystery who, who murders this, this herbivore to start out. Right. Um, you know, to me, it's, I assume that's creating dramatic tension, but I'm, I'm very curious as to how they balance it. I'm also curious, for example, they're serving scrambled eggs. So obviously poultry are not considered part of the pantheon here, part of the, 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 um, the acceptable creatures that have sentience. Uh, you I can will eat stop eggs. you there for one moment because yeah. they will answer that particular question in a very interesting and entertaining fashion. So um, a lot of the things you're bringing up, they, they do get a little more into, and it's really fascinating the way that things start to unfold. Yeah. And I'm not, um, I'm not at all surprised because they have, they're setting this whole, this whole world, right? That's what they're doing. They're creating a world here to, um, to explore and to explain to uh, the, us, the the viewer, as to what's going on. And for example, the whole hold on before I I would jump into um, episode two if I were doing that. I don't know that we need to go. Um, yeah, we're not. Order. There's there's a structure to it, but we're not beholden to not talking. I've already talked some about things that are in episode two. So if you feel but, like mean, there's something right to my thought, like in episode two in yeah. the cafeteria scene when uh, Lagoshi is he interjects into two other carnivores arguing and um, and then there becomes an explanation of what a bee star is because that <laughs> until that point was completely unclear to the reader. Right, I, I, right. I didn't know that there was, it was a thing and needed to be explained to us at all, but it turns out it is. Uh, um, so it, for the audience who might not understand um, bee star being the name is a combination between the words beast and star, but the way it fades onto the screen. And I only noticed this the second time watching the episodes was uh, it comes in as be a star. So haha. I mean, that's so corny. I'm sorry. Oh, and it's just a corny concept. Like 
a, a high school student who performs excellently or is part of this weird drama club that oh the drama club is so important right like it's it's life and death stakes become, at the drama club and i'm like right. what come on people take this is just drama club like <laughs> i don't understand why this has outsized importance and everybody's falling over themselves because of Rui. and uh, i'm like dude could take a chill pill it's fetishized, fetishized, really. Well, and again, it's part of the world, and that's fine. I'll suspend my. I've, we've already suspended our disbelief so far to get here. It's not that hard to suspend it to get to drama club is the is the top ranked club in terms of hierarchy. But back up for a second, because B star is some kind of leadership role within this beast community, within this animal world. Well, within this school, it seems um, it, it's specific to the school, but it does seem it's it's kind of like being. I, I, the way I interpreted it after, after having pondered it is it's like being the class president while also having influence outside of the school. Like it would be, I feel like if you attain the rank of B star, and I don't know how that would be, um, how that would be granted to you or how it would be acknowledged, but then it would be a mark you'd carry with you the rest of your life as some sort of, you know, power symbol or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I will say that from what I understand, it is, it, this is a school specifically that, that sort of chooses who the B-star is, right? So it's like an elite prep school to become part of that like elite grouping, right? Oh, so you're, you imply that the rank of B-star extends beyond the school and that I this it school does, yes. is one where, okay, I, I don't know, you, you, we already know you know more than I do. So maybe that will become clearer. But I do. But I, I don't think it was made clear yeah. whether that was the case in this episode, in these two episodes. And it's meant everything's, you're not supposed to know with perfect knowledge everything that's going on. Like that's clear. No, absolutely uh, not. And I won't fill in the, the blanks in that regard. But um, yeah, let's get into the episode. This first episode is called The Moon and the Beast. As we talked about, it starts with um, with sort of this, this dark embrace we don't know what's going on, but we know that the the, the main character, Legoshi, who is a really interesting character because um, he's supposed to be the carnivore, the aggressor, but all the time he seems to be acting like a beta when you see him. Certainly at the beginning. Well, yes. And he's got a really low-key personality and he takes care of bugs. Like, it's interesting. Well, yeah, and it's clear that that is meant to be a dichotomy of his character under the surface is all this angsty uh well angst is the way that i will describe certain scenes but he's got a lot buried underneath is i think the point here and some of it he's comfortable with and some he's not absolutely and you've got you've got him and his sad nobility and then you've got paru who is the rabbit who is being embraced at the very first scene and she's going to be one of our other main characters and she's been targeted by bullies but she doesn't give an inch she is ferocious Yes, uh, and you get that out of the first episode, definitely. But I think the sequencing of the first episode, the, the the first sequence is wordless. It is the leaping scene that is reprised, or not reprised, but actually occurs at the end of the first episode. But in the beginning, it just happens, and you don't have a lot of context. There is the, the music, there's the big 
blood red moon. I'm very curious as to whether a blood red moon is supposed to signify anything or if it's just symbolic of, of or if there's, if it's going to actually have some sort of consequence here, I don't know. Um, but I did think the, the actual animation was very nice. Oh yeah. Right after that is the carnivore scene where, um, Tam is being pursued. He gets presumably eaten. Um, and it, to me, after now having watched the first two episodes, it was it was a very dark opening, uh, and it it made things you know it it set a whole tone of unease about about everything. Absolutely, um, our hook is that we need to solve this mystery, but it's not something that the show is obsessed with. It's something that sort of starts to take a backseat to, um, and it it sets up your expectations. Like um, now you know that we're dealing with a world where violence like this that disrupts the sort of harmoniousness that the harmony of of this world built on this this idea that predator and prey can coexist um can be disrupted and it it casts all of our characters in different lights like uh the first episode is focused on Legoshi sort of stalking tem and every time you see him he's uh, not tem i'm sorry he's stalking else the um the alpaca girl, right? Mm, Or the implication is that he's stalking. Right. The implication is that he's stalking her. It frames him as if he's got nefarious intent. But then when you finally see him sort of reveal himself to her after she like gives him a verbal beat down about how she's not just food and she's more than that. And all uh, carnivores are the same. He, He gives her a love letter and it's a really cute, like, like, nice moment and he disarms her and she tries to walk it back but he just says you know he's so used to it and yeah it doesn't matter because people's perceptions won't change i also right, right. Seen i love theme. what you said earlier I, i'm sorry i'm just gonna oh, go ahead. like set you up here for a sec i love what you said earlier because um i, th- I think that in this world, I don't know what the carnivores are getting out of it. I think they're on the short end of the stick on this one. Uh, they're the ones who need to suppress their their instincts and the yeah. So that's true because they're suppressing their instincts. Herbivores therefore have a lot more freedom. Uh, so what are carnivores getting out of the deal? Totally unclear. Uh, right at this point, completely unclear. Um, I, I will say that that particular scene. Uh, after I watched it, I was like, it would not have been difficult for Lekoshi to say, hold on, I've got a letter <laughs> to to prevent uh, a lot of the, which is for us, the audience building tension of he's, st- he's coming closer to her, what's he going to do? Um, but I, I thought it was kind of silly in, in retrospect. Uh, this would not be difficult to be like, oh, I'm obviously a giant carnivore <laughs> approaching a right, right. and the dark of night maybe i could just say hold on (laughs) (laughs) well one thing that we we do get um a sense of in this episode is that when you are a gray wolf you are gigantic and he is working double time to try to minimize his presence and he when when he's trying to learn how to communicate with these animals uh from on these smaller herbivores he's basically having to both act out like a we a weaker a weakness that he's that he's not naturally inclined to 
and he's also trying to um, like connect. And I don't think he knows how, because when you see him with Haru, he he seems like he's completely foreign to the idea of talking to an herbivore like anybody else. There were some things when he was speaking with Haru that actually I was like, come on, dude. Uh, What was one in particular uh, when he says, or he says something, he's looking at her. He's like, her head is so far away. And I'm like, dude, what? Um, uh, Literally. (laughs) Yeah, I know it. But then he's like, I've never, it's like, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever spoken to such a small creature before. And I wanted to be like, you haven't like 17 years through this entire thing. And there are literal rodents running around that people were afraid of stomping on. And you, you have managed to avoid speaking to them this entire time. Well, let's talk about the two different forms of, of communication there. There's like opening yourself up and speaking to somebody. And then they're sort of delivering information that they need or that you need. Right. So there's like a very performative kind of communication. And then there's a kind of emotional communication. And it seems like he's kind of stunted in the emotional communication department. And even his co I'm uh, carnivores, not co-carnivores, whatever I'm saying, his fellow carnivores, uh, they push him as a junior at school to finally try to make those like to, to work on his communication skills. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not unsurprising to have a 17 year old boy have needs to grow in the communication area. That's not exactly, (laughs) not a a surprise. I mean, it's, but never had a conversation with a small animal before. I mean, I guess it's meaning he's never really chatted with one. And of course his, he's totally, his emotions are heightened. He's um, feeling, we don't, we're not really sure. Is he, does he want to eat her again? Is he, he's, he appears to be attracted to her. The whole thing is um, kind of confusing in a lot of, and it's intended to be, I'm sure for us, the, the watcher and for him, the, the actual uh, person feeling evincing the emotions. Hey, Jory, have you ever watched the anime called One Piece? Yeah, Joe, I watch for a podcast that we do. What? You know, we are watching One Piece. I started watching it so you could rewatch it, and then we talk about it sometimes. I I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, we don't do it super frequently. Once a month at best. Did, Did you forget? We analyze the story and discuss the show's themes, characters, compare it to other media, and how it provides an allegory for real life politics and events. I, I must have forgotten. What, where can I listen to remind myself? You can listen at the Orange Groves Podcast Network or search for We Are Watching One Piece in your favorite podcast app. What's a podcast? Welcome to They Them There's a monthly non-binary discussion podcast. We're here. We're queer. Let's talk about it. My name is Joe. And my name is Rain. We're non-binary and once a month we sit down and we talk about gender. 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 <laughs> we talk about our experiences with gender expression, pronouns, and other parts of the trans and non-binary experience. We also talk about a lot of anime and music that we like and relate to. And our cats. Yeah. <laughs> you can listen at theorangegroves.com or search They Them Theirs on your podcast app of choice. Until next time, take care, and remember, nice gender.
I really like Louis. He's really cool. He seems like the star of B-Stars, or at least the star of, like, his school, right? Girls carry his picture. Girls have his picture on their wall. Like, he comes, he speaks, he speaks boldly with fancy words. He's cool-headed. He carries himself with this kind of importance. True, but he's also cruel, uh, and he's haughty. Uh, and is a good word for it. Privileged. Uh, there, there's, in fact, I focused on his negative aspects uh, at his introduction rather than his positive ones. When the positive ones do seem to come out later, um, and clearly Lagoshi idolizes Rui, um, perhaps more than uh, Rui deserves. But it does appear that Rui has a higher, a higher message he's trying to achieve, or a higher principle he's trying to. Um, defend or present. And again, he's an example of an herbivore who's supposed to be weak or supposed to be the prey, but he's so in command and he's so confident that he seems more aggressive than even Lagoshi, who's like this giant gray wolf. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, with that presentation. I mean, it helps that they picked a noble creature to be the representation for uh, Rui, like the, the stag. And those horns, when I look at them, I guess I will betray my hunter background a little bit. Like those, that's a full-grown stag set of horns. Those are not like adolescent horns. There's a lot of, there's a lot of herbivores that, you know, are pretty, pretty tough. We haven't, I haven't seen or looked for any elephants or like hippos, but nobody messes with those creatures. They're tough as nails. Um, they're generally seen as herbivores. So, you know, there's, there's certainly power and majesty in, in herbivores that can, uh, rise to the occasion. Um, I find we've, we've, we have seen other predators, um, that to me, you know, we've got our whole scale of predators, but we haven't seen a lot of alpha predators. We had one tiger, I think who was at one of the scenes in the beginning in the drama club when they were facing off with the, there was the zebra and then a tiger and they were kind of trading spars. That was actually the first time we heard Lagoshi's name when there was this little, um, this little herbivore running around saying, Hey, I can't open my package of nuts. Has anyone seen? She was a squirrel. She was a squirrel. I, I did not remember, but apparently you do. And she's looking for Lagoshi to open her, her uh, can of nuts or something. And people are like, oh, I do wonder where he is. It's interesting, the, the scale of the creatures. You know, giraffes keep their long necks, but squirrels get reduced reduced to about half the size of a bear, I would say. Which is weird because we have rodents, right? And we had in the cafeteria scene, there was a whole table of rodents all sitting around. Um, I like that um, it also distinguishes itself from Zootopia by having these... Uh, creatures like birds and reptiles um, instead of just sticking with mammals. So that's going to add some interesting things, especially since reptiles are cold-blooded, you know. Getting back to Louis and his thing, you said that you focused on the negative, but let's talk about the positive. Um, he's having, is it Zoe, the the guy who's replacing Tem? Yeah. that He he has him run through lines and he, he puts, this is how Lagoshi gets positioned to be outside when Haru comes <sighs> Uh, by after getting cleaned up from the bullying that she received earlier. And um, he has him running lines and then it's dark in there. So, cause they're not supposed to be in there and he get and they don't want to be caught. And when he falls off the stage, Louis puts himself in harm's way to keep him from getting hurt. And in the process, Louis gets a lame leg 
for his trouble. So, you know, um, you were talking about how ridiculous it is that they care so much about this play, but Lagoshi really cares about this play. Like, it's like his sacred calling. Well, a lot of people seem to care about the play, but I do have to ask why, if the purpose is to run lines and maybe do set blocking, we have to do it in the darkened theater under cover of night. We couldn't have just chosen, like, a dorm room or something, thereby obviating the need for damage or... And also, when we've snuck in here, why would we just turn off the light? If Louis is important as he says, why doesn't he just go like, hey, I'm important. I'm going to be the B star. You should let me practice at night. But I mean, they probably can't because of the attack that happened. It's a crime scene. So I, I didn't really have a problem with them. Well, also, hold on. That's not the crime scene. That took place in a in a presentation. It was in a presentation room, yeah. Right, but so, they must be locking down. They must say, look, everything's dangerous, so you guys can't be out at night, right. which just makes total sense. Um, but I don't see why they couldn't have, you know, there are usually common areas in dorm rooms, and Rui couldn't have said, hey, let's run our lines there, why it has to be on the actual stage. Again, I'm, I'm not going to belabor the point. It's obviously critical because it leads up to our good friend um, Legoshi actually uh, meeting um Haru for the first time. And without that, obviously, we wouldn't have uh, so much of the dramatic tension that the show seems to be focusing on. Yeah, I love how that scene plays out because it comes in as a perfume that he catches whiff of. And then he has to kind of face off against his own instinct, right? Or is this, am I probably talking about episode two here? I'm going to give you a little bit more background on what happened. Episode one and the transition into episode two. It's, It's not. It's not entirely seamless, but you just see the jump again in episode one. And then episode two is sort of reliving the night and struggling with one's uh, inner demons, so to speak, quite manifested. I said he has a conversation with his own ferocious nature. It's very (laughs) one-sided. He basically gets like pummeled into action. And the only thing that saves him from actually eating Haru at that moment is the arrival of Louis of, of um, Zoe or whoever it was that was with Louis to say that he's injured. So, um, by the way, I'm pronouncing this Rui and with an R, but you sound like you're pronouncing it like Louis, like Louis the Fourteenth. So uh, I was thinking of Louis the Fourteenth the whole time, and I and the the weird play that they put on, which I believe is called Adler the Grim Reaper. I don't know if it's actually a real play. I but not. it reminds me of an Alexander Dumas story, like the Count of Monte Cristo or something. Monte Cristo, but <laughs> yes, Cristo. <laughs> but yes, that is exactly. Uh, I, I actually, that's a great, a great uh, reference because it does have that sort of stylized feel. Actually, getting back to to Rui, you know, like just his whole. Even the way he was introduced with this sexy jazz music, there was like a sexy jazz riff that came in when he was first being described yes. by Lagoshi in his own words. Like he's, it's very, it's, he's, he's obviously an oversized character. And in the opening to the second episode, when Lagoshi is stalking um, Haru, uh, he does it at one point in the antlers of um Louis. So if we get back to the name, like I, I wonder if it's, if it's just like a, a bastardization. I don't know. I do know that the subtitles have with an R and as opposed to an L. We'd have to look at the um, official like art. Cause sometimes they write the English names out. Sometimes yeah. they write the Japanese pronunciations out in English and it changes how you see it. Like the, the school's name is 
um, Cheriton Gakuen, right? And Gakuen is, I would have translated as academy, but in here you can see it clearly on the building is school. Um, and we went to the Dairyfield School, which could have very well been called the Dairyfield Academy. In fact, I think if you went and recommended it to them, they'd be like, that's brilliant. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. But you and I both, that's so funny that you and I both went to private school together. And uh, this is, this is, I guess, a private school. I don't remember the play being that important. <laughs> I mean, there, there was a couple things. Like, I think it was, if I, I wrote down here and I noticed in my notes, I wrote, why is Rui being such an ass? And this gets back to when he grabs Zoe's mouth right at the, right every Oh my God. Why yes. is he being so physical? Why is he being such a jerk to Zoe? Like he's clearly in command. This is the haughty bit. I think that how I took away from his character, like he does already exhibit some noble aspects in just the first two episodes, but he starts off on pretty rocky footing in being uh, to me kind of a jerk and entitled and um, overbearing to all these different people. Yes. Okay. I, I wanted to ask, um, and maybe, I don't know if you can make this transition now, but I'm, there's, to me, currently, a mystery with respect to Haru with in terms of what happened with her, why she's on the outs, why her roommates threw her mattress out of the window, and why this is totally cool with people. I mean, who throws a mattress out of a window? Oh my God. Like it's because she won't apologize, I think for what she did and the bullying just sort of gets expounded by her attitude because I don't know, maybe this is Japanese, but I feel like if you don't apologize, you're just going to make it worse and worse for yourself. Who would she be? She's supposed to apologize to the, the bicolored rabbit to the Harlequin rabbit. I forget her name. Yeah, I, I forget it as well, but and it was her boyfriend that apparently that Haru says, Hey, he kissed me. So I don't really know why this is such a big deal. And I don't feel the need to apologize to you, which, you know, from my perspective is totally right. Like if, if you're, if your significant other is fooling around on you, um, it's not the person they're fooling around with who's supposed to apologize. Haru has, I mean, they've, they mentioned this a couple of times and it seems like they don't quite answer it in this episode. So I can't give you all the answers, but Haru has a reputation. Um, Yeah, that. That came sort of clear. I did yeah. you jump back to that to the mattress scene. She drags her mattress back into her room. It appears that she shares the room with three other people because there's somebody in there who didn't help or otherwise try and stop those two other and carnivores, I believe they were. They both looked like cats. At any rate, I was very curious about this. And then that that other person or that other roommate so they'd be four to a dorm room here, which is fine. Right. But that other doormate is then working on a crossword. And this is where the dub versus the subtitles first really uh, broke up because the they were searching for a 10-letter word. And in the dub, it said, hey, the, um, Haru said, hey, the word you're looking for is ostracized. And the subtitle said it's, in fact, black sheep. Both of them have 10 letters. Both of them imply... Um, the actual mm. ostracization or somebody who's left out. Maybe, they, um, maybe the localization team thought that it would not, it would go over the audience's head if it was black sheep. Maybe. Although I think it's a, it obviously is a great 
uh, a great point for Beastars. I'm curious as to whether you remember that scene and whether uh, you recollect what what it was in Japanese. Uh, the Japanese is no kimono, which means uh, to like a pariah. Oh, so that's a that's a great yeah. representation of what they're trying to get across there. I think so. I think so. I, it was a little cheekier for her to say that and then have the the answer be so readily accepted by her roommate, who you know seems a little clueless as to how much this makes Haru un, like suffer. Well, but I think your point earlier, Haru's not suffering. She's very resigned. She's got a bit of a chip on her shoulder for that matter. Oh, well, she's not apologetic at all about taking uh, her man. And she's, she will say some pretty some pretty nasty things as things go on here. So. All right, well, we'll see how that goes. I, I, was, I was very curious about it. I feel uh, like the, this is another example of bigotry that we're seeing. This one uh, specifically sort of to the animal realm where a harlequin rabbit is rare and therefore uh, of a higher class, basically. Yes. Yeah, so I did notice that there, that, that sort of focus on class um, is very present here, but it seems to me somewhat, it feels archaic isn't the right word, a little outdated. Um, not that there's not all sorts of different classes, but I think the way we represent them in Western society is, a little different. I, I don't know. I the the sort of status that it is immediately afforded apparently to this um, endangered creature uh, is very um, very funny to me. Um, right. I don't mind that at all because like taking from history to sort of highlight something that's interesting about the animal. Like if you were to translate the animal kingdom to modern times, to me is is a smart move because. Um, you look back and you think like, oh, people used to have like real class status. And as we've sort of all sort of melded into the middle class or whatever you want to call it, um, there's less of that now. But I worry that there's getting to be more, but we are definitely going to steer away from those topics on the Beastars podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I did want to, I did want to talk a little bit about Haru because I find her confusing some of her, Quotes where she's talking about, um, uh, like the guys want to protect her, but then they then they realize it's not the way their fantasy is. Presumably, because as you're talking about, she's perfectly capable of she's she's a tough character in and of herself. So then right. they kind of have fun with her, and then they wander off. And I can't tell if she's sad about it. And then there was this weird soliloquy when. Um, Lagoshi first leaps on her or is about to leap on her, which I didn't really understand. Like I didn't quite understand what, what they were trying. This is, it's like the scene again, like a horror movie, you're about to be eaten. You're thinking your last thoughts. And then we just ended the first episode of that. And I was like, this is really weird. Um, Well, yeah. um, I think she knows that, I think all of them are acutely aware of what their relationship in nature is versus their relationship in society. And she's had such a rough time of it. Um, and not being able to like all of her relationships seem to be of a, of a sexual or a, um, a physical nature, I should say. Um, so she kind of gives up in a way and she's just like, 
All right, well, I see what I am now. I see what I am, and I'm ready to just go into your mouth. So you can just have me if you want. Um, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, you I, know, when I read that scene, yet. <laughs> when I read that scene with Lakoshi and Haru where they embrace, um, That's it not the word. was very Twilight to me. So Twilight, I don't know if you've read it or watched it or I know have, anything about I it. I read Twilight. I admit that makes me a cultural outlier. No, it's fine. Um, it's a, basically the story of a girl who is somehow extraordinary, but very plain at the same time. And uh, she attracts the attention of a vampire who alternately wants to eat her, but also just wants to possess her in some way or another, right? And sort of his lust for like, his lust for her gets tied up in those other emotions. It's a good parallel that you bring in because that's that's what we're looking at with Lagoshi in a lot of ways. Like he he is overwhelmed with desire, but the desire extends beyond the sexual. And here it's mostly rooted in his uh, carnivorous predilection. Um, he wants to eat her, uh, but he is also overwhelmed with the desire not just to eat her, but to um, absorb her. You know, to 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 fully experience her essence. And that that's both um, said and symbolized in the, in smelling her and that activating all the parts of his nervous system. And, right. When they expand on that scene later, he, like he also focuses on her heartbeat and mm-hmm. like, there's this, like there's a connection that happens between them, which I'm not going to give too much away, but I could say that that connection is is up for grabs basically like what is that connection is it is it a romantic connection it is a, is it a friendship connection is it something spiritual or is it so primal i i mean i would i would give it the full um the full window like it's the kind of relationship that can't necessarily be defined by particular roles uh, and I don't think that's uncommon of, in fact, first relationships a lot where it's just, you're overwhelmed by emotions that you've never felt before in your life. And they're so incredibly at- intense and it just spills over into all sorts of all sorts of parts of your psyche. That's true. That's true. And I like that his he has his first inklings of a relationship uh, with a female at the same time as he has his awakening of a hunger within him. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like we're going through puberty at light speed. Right. Oh, before we do that, one last thing. Back to the cafeteria scene. I was curious because Rui saw right through, or I guess I should call him Louis. Um, Louis saw right through uh, Lagoshi when Lagoshi had, and I don't know why this is a problem. Lagoshi said, hey, stop it to the carnivores, the ferret and whatever else it was, or I, I'm I don't know what creature. There's a fox and a hyena, I believe. How did you know that? Oh, maybe it came from the the manga? Uh, Well, one thing is, you know, while tensions were hot in that battle, I couldn't help but notice the gag of a a hyena telling a fox not to laugh at it. (laughs) I see. And you may have also been able to see these things, because there's there's Japanese text that pops on the screen, and I can't read that. Um, But I presume you you can. And sometimes they translate for us, but... Like they train. Well, the Japanese word they use is hera hera warate, which is like kind of like that kind of like ha 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 ha, right? So I thought maybe it was kind of a, a little subtle j- gag that they added in. But at any rate, 
Um, hmm. Lagoshi tells everyone to shut up. Other people are shocked that he would say anything. And I don't know why, because it seems like a nice and good, responsible thing to do. Um, and then the fox come over, comes over and is telling him to uh, that he's going to beat him up, even though he's smaller than him. And I didn't understand that. And Lagoshi immediately, as you're talking about, he wants to be subservient. He wants to show that he's, uh, or he, he wants to mask or... Uh, hide his true ability or nature. He's trying mm, to think about how to, yes. how to lose the battle. Louis shows yes. up. Louis diffuses the whole situation in, with some actual funny things to me is, you know, the Fox tells him, Oh, you're trying to be B star. You gotta, you're going to have to work harder to make people like you. And then immediately Louis turns around and says, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he says something that kind of turns the crowd to his uh, point of view and then the fox gets all pissed off that he's diffused the fight, even though Louis did exactly what the fox was telling him that he needed to do. Um, he was sort of cultivating the the respect and admiration of his peers. And then he told, then Louis told uh, Lagoshi, "Hey, you you were really trying to lose that fight." And I was curious as to how Louis can see right through Lagoshi. I presume that's based on his character. He's keen eyed. You know, this is this is part of the the good and noble aspects, and not just good and noble, but also um, wise and intelligent nature of Louis. Um, I see that as well, um, and I also see that Louis is an actor who saw someone acting, and he knew good acting versus bad acting, um, and he saw through the performance of it as but well. How would he know? And this is the thing that was confusing to me. How would he know that? Lagoshi wanted wants to minimize who he is at the moment. That's what he's doing. Well, you remember the scenes earlier in the episodes where um, he was talking about how he played at being weak, but Louis got to see how ferocious. Well, he Louis is. immediately read the situation. You shoot your fangs to stop a fight rather than start it. You know that makes. Well, sense. I mean, when when Lagoshi stepped in front of um, Kai, who was going to punch Louis. You're right. You're right. That's the exactly scene I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Yeah. Louis says, so, hey, I see you showed your fangs to stop a fight rather than start it. And I actually replayed that scene several times because we, as the audience, it's really hard to see. You barely see Lagoshi show his fangs. You can see it in the mirror behind um, Kai. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah, so now let's talk about the end because it gets sexy. <laughs> right. In And did you notice this? When Lagoshi arrives and then that anteater runs off for the aforementioned errand, leaving uh, our protagonist alone with Haru, um, he talks about it being the devil's garden, or it was alternately translated as the garden of evil. And I was oh. like, what, what is this garden? What's wrong with this garden? There were so many weird things about this garden scene, I have to say. I don't remember him calling it evil. I, well, that's why I stopped it. I stopped the episode and I was like, why Why is this referred to as a bad place? I assume it's a reference back to Garden of Eden, you know, where innocence is lost and humanity takes on a bunch of sins. I mean, I assume that parallel is there. Um, Lagoshi is totally wrapped up in his own head, realizes that this is the rabbit he tried to maul before, freaks out, thinks up a, an escape point, and then immediately that is taken over by the anteater who uses the exact same excuse to leave, leaving him alone, you know, his worst fear realized with Haru. And I still don't understand, and you presumably do, 
you know, if if Haru is just a tramp, that's one thing. But that doesn't mm-hmm. normally make people run away and uh, or not want to associate with him necessarily. Like being a tramp. Well, we know she has a bad reputation. That's clear. Harlequin bunny incident. Yes, that we know. We don't know, or I don't know anything else. So I still think that there's much to be revealed about why Haru is seen as as a, a pariah. There is. There is. All right, well, I guess we'll find out. Um, but she doesn't seem to know what that is either. No, and his she she seems to misread him being quiet for him implying that he's there for another reason. Uh, yeah, that's obvious. I, I wrote down here, super angsty teenage bullshit, which is my interpretation <laughs> of Nagoshi being completely unable to get out of his own head, trying to figure out how he wants to talk more with Haru. Meanwhile, Haru like strips down in front of him and is like, all right, let's go. I actually really disliked this particular aspect of the scene because Haru seems pretty unenthusiastic about the whole thing. She's like, well, normally after a hard days of work, this is not what I do. But, and I've also never been to the carnivore, but I guess, all right, this could be fun. Like that is not a great segue to a romantic dalliance. At least from my perspective, I would be like, this is just crazy. And I'm curious to see how they resolve it in episode three. Um, I presume that they're going to return to that particular moment of high emotional dudgeon. But it was, <laughs> to me, I'm just like, what what is going on here, here in the devil's garden? Um, it was just really, uh, really something. And then in the, the, the garden, there were some other things that really, like, right before they were in the darkened room and she was thanking him for having moved the pots and was going to say, oh, I'll buy you a meal or something. Um, uh, there's this, he's like having these like weird thoughts about her. And there's this huge montage of ra- of rabbit gardening scenes of her, like going around, like tending to the garden. And I was like, what the hell is this? Is he dreaming these? Like he hasn't been in this garden except this afternoon in order to Correct. see anything. So these can't, from him having seen many scenes of Haru over time having done all of this I was like what the hell is this right I think he's in he's in the garden he's with the rabbit he hasn't really seen her outside the context of the garden so all of his weird fantasies just seem to outside of the context of the garden where he jumped her (laughs) no but yeah but I'm saying away from that like he suddenly sees her in a new maybe in a new light like I would say that that's that's part of what we're seeing. Yes, that's quite possible. And but I, I once again go to the garden, Garden of Eden. That's to me with the the Devil's Garden comment. There's all sorts of things. It actually, you know, it was it was very something. And I'm super curious about this. Like, what the heck is going to happen in the next scene? I mean, in you know how you would extrapolate previously, he would ravish her, but that would normally mean just eating. Um, as opposed to sexual conquest here, it does not strike me that Lagoshi has a lot of sexual experience. And it also strikes me as a little weird that wolves can have mm-hmm. sex with rabbits, but I guess we're just going to suspend our disbelief for that. I guess there's plenty of intersexual romance that can occur, even though her last sexual dalliance appears to have been with, as natural, another rabbit. Um, but like rodents won't be able to have sex with like big mammals like the whole thing is just very well sex is a very fluid term right yes okay i don't need to get too far into it but yeah i hear your point if you want to talk about the logistics of how a small rodent would have sex with a giant bear i think that we can have an after hours podcast to discuss (laughs) angles an after hours podcast 
if we're talking about Beastars in the first place, where I have to oh, end- no, yeah, this is this is this is a this is not for children. In case you haven't figured that out, the other thing that the last thing I want to reference, I I thought that scene was very interesting, mostly for the the foreshadowing it was going to imply, and also the super angsty teenage bullshit. Which once again to get back to um, Neon Genesis, where I felt like the protagonist was absolutely unable to get out of his own head, and I was very annoyed by him. And so I was very annoyed by Legoshi, where he's like holding his snout and not even looking around the room while um, Haru disrobes. Like, come on, you wouldn't have immediately noticed that this is happening in front of you? I guess not. Um, but like, <laughs> when, right before this... I like the way they show you getting into his head, though. I like it. I, it, it literally is his head, and... It be, and what is actually happening becomes this window like inside of his head like it's not like you can see inside his head literally and i like that about that's it. fair I, another I of those stylistic or for example a little earlier in that uh sequence where he's telling himself do not ask her about the arm and meanwhile he just watches himself in a detached way like actually asking her about what happened to her arm and he's like what the heck are you doing self <laughs> Uh, I, I appreciate that because I remember that from my own youth in doing things that I couldn't possibly muster up the energy to right. do. Uh, but when, do you recall in the scene prior to this, right before they go to get the flowers, um, uh, Legoshi is holding Tam's uh, uniform and saying it's kind of weird to have this. And then he goes into, once again, it's one of these uh, things about this world. And um, <laughs> I found it kind of amusing that they talk about it. It's like, oh, carnivores killing herbivores is considered this world's greatest taboo. And I thought to myself, no shit. Killing somebody else is the world's greatest taboo, huh? That's, uh, you you really had to spell that one out for us, didn't you? Well, you'll get to see more of how the world works. um, I I mean, well, maybe maybe there is a lot more, but I just found it amusing that we're talking about killing being the greatest taboo. And uh, yes, killing is the greatest taboo, which it's rightfully so it shouldn't take its place as number one in the pantheon of sins you should not right, commit at one point, please don't at kill. one point louis says something about it uh, being very impolite to bear your fangs <laughs> in the cafeteria yeah uh, i'm very curious to see how the world plays out uh so i think we've covered everything we needed to say about these two episodes it's a lot but this was our introduction to the world this was an, our introduction to our uh to each other um so do you have any final thoughts on the series or the episode so far? I'm, I'm very curious to see where it goes. Uh, I can't tell it, it. I can't tell if I think it takes itself too seriously or not seriously enough. Mm. No, it takes itself too seriously. Um, I, I, I think, think it's it a actually, good thing. I think it's a good thing because it's, it's kind of a crazy premise. And if it, they didn't play it straight, it would be even, it wouldn't, I don't think it would sink in. The emotions wouldn't be real. Uh, it's, <laughs> I, I, there are a whole lot of directions this can go. So I'm very curious to see uh, the journey. Well, I hope you're enjoying it. I very much am. That's it for this episode of the Cherryton School Report. I'm your host, Sabrina Ray, sometimes known as Boo. Thank you for listening. And if you want to support this show and others like it made by a diverse community of smaller creators and marginalized voices, please consider donating to our network, Patreon. Patreon.com slash The Orange Groves, where you can access exclusive content from this and other amazing podcasts, including extras and cut content. I hope you guys will tune in next time, and you should definitely reach out to us. Uh, you can find my handle on Twitter, uh, at Stew of Boo, 
S-T-E-W-O-F-B-O-O. Uh, tell us what you thought of the show and um, tell your friends about it. Go give us a five-star rating on iTunes. <laughs>